Well, I, I love Maggie's story, uh, and I love it because it encapsulates exactly what we're trying to talk about in this series. We've been in a series for the past few weeks called Life in Babylon, and, and if, you, if you haven't been here, the, the conversation that we're trying to have is, is I think we've all experienced a, a changing culture, whether you grew up in Atlanta or whether you're maybe from a, a small town. You, you, if, if you're like me at all, you maybe grew up in what was known then as more of a Judeo-Christian ethic. Um, and, and we find ourselves now in, in a, a culture that is deeply secular and becoming more and more secular. And, and we've been asking the question of what does Christian faithfulness look like in a context like that? And we're not alone in this. In fact, the people of God have found themselves in contexts like this uh, many times throughout the history of the church, throughout the history of the people of God. Um, and, and one of those times, one of those ideas was in this idea of exile that we see actually all throughout the Bible. Um, but when people find themselves in an uncomfortable context, they're prone to kind of one of two things. Uh, and so the first is, is to assimilate, right? When, when you find yourself in a context where the world disagrees with you, where your worldview is not value, uh, you, you, you assimilate, you, you create a worldview, you adopt a worldview that is acceptable. And the way this oftentimes works with Christianity, it's not that people wholesale reject you know, all Christian symbolisms and they quit worshiping, uh, they quit celebrating Christmas, they quit, you know, celebrating, uh, you know, Easter and they have no, they remove all kind of Christian symbols from their life. The way it usually manifests is that people kind of reject a kind of Christian doctrine that is unacceptable in the secular world. They assimilate their Christian doctrine to kind of the acceptable norms of the world around them. But it's a withdrawal, right? It's a withdrawal from conviction. The other thing that Christians often do, though, is they separate, right? They kind of get out of the culture. They withdraw from the culture, right? They form Christian enclaves um, where they don't have to be around people that disagree with them. They don't have to be around people that hold to a different worldview. Of course, this is why Christians oftentimes leave cities or leave secular companies or leave secular schools or, or even move to places where they feel like they'll be surrounded by more people that agree with them all the time. But it seems, as, as we've studied the scripture, that, that faithfulness is not a withdrawal, right? Faithfulness is not a withdrawal from conviction and it's not a withdrawal from culture. It's to be present. It's to be faithfully present, faithful to the Lord, faithful in our conviction, but present in the place and the age that the Lord has sent us to be in. And that's why I love Maggie's story. You know, it's funny, you know, she's praying to be laid off uh, because she doesn't like the place where she is. And all of a sudden, after her first round of layoffs, second round of layoffs, she's a relatively new employee in the company. She finds herself in the company, and, and all of a sudden, she's like, well, maybe <laughs> I'm supposed to be here. And, and maybe I'm not just here for myself. Maybe God has sent me here. One of the conversations that we have been having is that as soon as you become a Christian, you kind of immediately gain this dual citizenship, a citizenship in the city of man, so we are all citizens of the United States or citizens of the city of Atlanta. We are in certain local contexts, but also when you become a Christian, fundamentally, primarily, 
You are a citizen of the city of God. You are one of God's people, God's chosen people, a person, a part of the people that God has called to himself to glorify himself through you. And that's our fundamental identity. And again, I love Maggie's story because I think she has started to realize, wait, maybe I'm not supposed to get an identity from who I am in the city of man. Maybe I'm not supposed to go to work looking for an identity, but, but rather I'm supposed to go to work as an ambassador of the city of God. Now, the thing I hope for this series is that we wouldn't watch Maggie's story and say, man, great story, happy for Maggie, but that we would think, well, what if God was actually doing the same thing in all of your lives? What if God was doing the same thing throughout our whole church? One of the things that we often talk about is that the church has this has this rhythm of gathering. That's what we're doing now. And the gathering is so important, right? It's in the gathering that we remind ourselves that there's no one like Jesus, right? That, that, that all we have, all we need, all we want, it, it's, it's wrapped up in Jesus because through him we can know the living God. And so it's good that we are here and that we're singing together and that we're having Christian fellowship with one another and that later we're gonna take communion together and remind ourselves of, of the identity that we have in the Lord. Of course, that we're sitting now under the preaching of God's word. So the gathering is so important. But if we really gather and we really understand that we are citizens of the kingdom of Christ sent out as ambassadors, well, then we will scatter. And it won't just be Maggie that's scattering. It will, we'll all scatter. <laughs> we'll scatter into different workplaces, different neighborhoods, different schools. And think about how this city can be changed. I mean, think about the potential Last week, if you were here, we, we talked about this idea of cultivation, that God has actually called you to go out and to cultivate the world. I, I use this idea, cultural products. And cultural products aren't just material products. They're, they're ways that we cultivate the world. And I love Maggie. I mean, one of the ways that she is cultivating her office place is baking brownies. I mean, what a simple thing that we can all do, but baking brownies, talking someone through a breakup, and that is a cultural product. To, to, to do some act of hospitality, to show some act of mercy to her friend who's hurting that, that is going to change her workplace. And, and what if we all had that vision for our lives as we scatter throughout the city all week long? What could God do through us? So I, that's really the whole series. We're, it's a call to faithfulness, right? We, we are prone to assimilate, to just kind of adopt the culture around us, to withdraw from our Christian conviction or to hold tight to our Christian conviction, but to separate, to, to, to withdraw from culture, to not engage because it's hard, it's challenging. But what does faithfulness look like? Where rather than withdraw, we pursue God in convictional faithfulness and what I'll just say is this faithfulness as ambassadors. And so in this series, we have been looking at these little character sketches. Now, today, we're looking at the book of Daniel. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn with me to Daniel 3. Now, the, the name of the series is Life in Babylon, and now we're actually in Babylon. Last week, we looked at the life of Joseph. Uh, Joseph was in Egypt, but, but held onto or, or illustrated for us this idea of exile. This one's actually happening in the Babylonian Exile. Daniel's a little hard to find. I noticed some of y'all flipping around. There's no shame in using the index uh, in your Bible. Daniel's about three-fourths away through your Bible. If you get to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, you've gone too far. If you're at 
Psalms, Proverbs, you still have a ways to go. Um, but, but what's happened in the book of Daniel is that the people of God, the, the chosen people of God, these Hebrew people have been taken away from Jerusalem over to Babylon, this evil city that was represented so much evil. It represented so much of what they were against. And God has called them there. And he said, while you're there, actually, rather than separate from the people and rather than accommodate to the people, I want you to actually seek the welfare of Babylon. I have sent you there for their good and so that my name will be glorified. And and we read all these stories. I mean, the book of Daniel is a fascinating book. We don't have time to go through the whole thing today, but we read all of these stories about how these people of God that had gone over there were faithful to God. They didn't separate. They were there present in Babylon, but they were faithful to God. And God blesses them and God takes care of them. And God's actually making a name for himself among these Babylonians. In chapter two, it's actually a very similar story. We're gonna look at it more in just a little bit here. But in chapter two, there's a, it's a similar story to what we looked at last week with the life of Joseph. The, the leader who is now uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king. So it's not Pharaoh, it's Nebuchadnezzar, but he has this dream and he wants somebody to interpret it for him. We're gonna look at that in a moment here. But Daniel who the book is named for, Daniel's able to do this. And because of that, Daniel gets this high position of authority. And what Daniel does with that position of authority, he promotes some of his friends. He gets his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he actually gives them positions of authority. That's the context of chapter three, these Jewish exiles. I mean, it's a, it's a true, you know, uh, it's a true Jewish rags to riches story, right? They, they came to Babylon as exiles. They were nobodies. And now, I mean, they have these big time government jobs, these big official jobs, and they're gaining in influence and authority and wealth and in power. So that's the context. And we're gonna skip around a little bit, but chapter three, I'm gonna read several different passages from it if you'll follow along with me as I read the word of our Lord aloud. Beginning in chapter one. So King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, about 90 feet high, and its breadth, six cubits. So you can do the math, about nine feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps and the prefects, the governors, the counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and all of the officials of all of the provinces to come for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Notice the repetition here. Then the satraps, the prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded O peoples and nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, every type of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." So we're gonna skip ahead to verse 16, but what happens in the middle, as you can guess, is everyone's bowing down. No one wants to be thrown into the furnace. But everybody bows down except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these Hebrew 
people who had been elevated to be officials. That's why they're here. They had become officials in the Babylonian land. Now you can imagine these Hebrew guys, these exiles, again, rags to riches story. Everybody around them is saying they don't belong here. You know, they're Hebrew people. They shouldn't be ruling over the Babylonians. And so they were, there was kind of an impulse among the people that they were out to get them. They, they were looking for them to have a misstep and now they've got them. They won't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's great statue. So they turn Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego into Nebuchadnezzar. I say, these people won't bow down to your image. And, and basically what's happening, when we get to verse 16, Nebuchadnezzar says, you got one chance, right? <laughs> right now, I'm gonna blow the pipe and you have one chance, you better bow down or you're going in the fire. And I love verse 16. Here's their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, <laughs> even if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated and he ordered some of his mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to set them into the burning and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their own cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace but because the king's uh, order was so urgent and the furnace was so overheated, the flames of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste and he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, Yes, true, O king. Then the king answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. This is the word of the Lord. There's a lot in this text I wanna to get to, but, but two things really quick. First, first of all, the threat of faithfulness and then the way to faithfulness. Let's look at the threat of faithfulness. Nebuchadnezzar is a fascinating character. Maybe one day we'll come back and do a study of the book of Daniel, but he's a fascinating character uh, of scripture. In order to understand chapter three, you have to go back to chapter two, as I mentioned. He starts having these dreams. He couldn't sleep. He's having this dream and it's haunting him. And he wants to know, what does the dream mean? What does the dream mean? And so he calls all the wise men of Babylon to him. And he says, tell me about my dream. Tell me what it means. But he didn't tell him the dream. That was the catch. He says, if you can tell me what my dream is and what it means, you will be rewarded greatly. But if you're wrong... Right, if you don't tell me what my dream is, then I'm gonna tear you apart limb to limb, okay? Pretty dire consequences there. 
Well, of course, all the wise men, it's funny if you kind of read it in the text, all the wise men of the Chaldeans are like, well, great King Nebuchadnezzar, if you just tell us your dream, then maybe we'll interpret it for you. But of course he doesn't. He, he, you know, he doesn't want them to make something up. He'll know that they're really hearing from God, from the person, the divine one that gave him this dream, if they can actually interpret, tell him the dream and then interpret the dream. Well, Daniel steps up to the challenge. He, he prays to God, he steps up to the challenge and he goes before Nebuchadnezzar and here's the dream, okay? It's a very fascinating dream. This is from Daniel 2. Daniel says, you saw, O king, this great image, this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness. It stood before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was fine gold. The chest and arms were silver. The middle and thighs of the image were bronze. And then the legs were of iron, partly iron and partly clay. This big image, right? Head, chest, middle, legs. And Daniel begins to interpret the dream for him. And he says that the head represents you, Nebuchadnezzar. It represents Babylon. You're the head. You're, you're the, you, you've, you've got the golden head. You, it's a great kingdom. But I have bad news, right? After you, let's keep this up here. After there's a, another kingdom coming, right? This chest and arms, this, this silver kingdom that's going to come. And then of course, after them, there's another kingdom coming. The, the thighs and the, the, the middle part, which is bronze. And then of course, a, then a fourth kingdom, this one of iron and of clay. Now, what's interesting is he goes on later to basically say, these are what these kingdoms would be. The the second kingdom, the silver kingdom, is going to be the Medes and the Persians. They're going to take over Babylon. And then after them, the Greeks, which at this time, you might could have guessed the Medes and the Persians were growing in power, but the, the, the fact that he predicted that the Greeks would come and reign one day, it was just a wild prediction. And then this fourth kingdom, which a lot of people think represents the Roman kingdom, the Roman empire that of course took over this part of the world that was represented by iron and clay. Again, another wild Prediction, But of course, this is exactly how world history played out. These kingdoms would come behind the great Babylonians. They, the Nebuchadnezzar and all of his greatness would be replaced. And so what does Nebuchadnezzar do in chapter three? Did you catch, you see, you get chapter two. What does he do in chapter three? He builds the same thing. For himself, he builds what he saw in his dream except for one thing. Well, what's the difference? Did you catch it? It's all gold. <laughs> There's no silver. <laughs> There's no bronze. There's no iron. There's no clay. The Romans, the Greeks, the Medes, they're, they're not, it's all the Babylonians. The, the greatness will go on forever and forever. And what does he do? I mean, it's so interesting. You hear the refrain over and over. Nebuchadnezzar has set this up. Nebuchadnezzar has set this up. He is saying, I want you to bow down to me and I want my kingdom to be this eternal kingdom. It's an interesting story. It's a fascinating story. But sadly, it's a story that doesn't seem too unfamiliar, does it? Somebody gets power and then their power is threatened. 
Someone challenges them. It could be another person or it could just be their powers threatened by old age or retirement. <laughs> and they grip it, right? <laughs> it's as if they say, no, I will see about this. In fact, I'm gonna make everybody bow down to me and honor me. Of course, I believe that leaders should be respected. But the problem, if you get into a position of leadership, the problem is you get a position of honor is that it goes to your head. You like it. Power leads to comfort. And these kinds of things can creep into your life and steal away your faithfulness. You know, there's a lot of sad stories to this regard. I mean, again, this is not what I'm saying here. Nobody's saying, I've never heard of that before. No, I mean, you all know these stories where somebody, they, they're doing pretty well, and, but the power kind of gets to them. The comfort gets to them and they don't finish well. They lose faith. They make concessions. They aren't faithful. Here, here's my fear for us as a church. You know, I'm not preaching right now to a bunch of outcasts. I'm not preaching to, you know, a bunch of exiles that have no sort of hope of any upward mobility in society. Now, I'm preaching to people who I, I desperately want you to be faithful to the city of God. But the city of man is is gonna celebrate you. It's gonna have jobs for you. It's gonna have promotions for you. It's gonna start giving you a lot. And when that happens, when that happens, will you go the way of Nebuchadnezzar and protect your stature and protect your power and protect your comfort in the city of man? Or, or will you go the way of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego and, and truly find your identity when the fire comes, when the test comes? Truly find your identity in the city of God. You know, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's again, as I said, it's a, it's a rags to riches story. It's, a, it's the Chaldean dream, right? They'd come to Babylon with nothing. I mean, they were exiles. They basically came as prisoners and now they're working for the king himself. Now they, now they are over Babylonians and they face this major test. And, and, and it's the test that proves their faithfulness. You know, so often it is this way. You know, the question I'm asking is, how do you know if you're more firmly planted in the city of God or in the city of man? How do you know? You know, it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell sometimes. You know, in the ministry of Jesus, there's all these dyads. There's all these comparisons. You know what I'm talking about, right? The sheep and the goats, right? The, the weed and the tear. The two houses, right? One on the rock, one on the sand. And you can't tell the difference, right? It's like, well, that... That, they both just look like beautiful houses or the, the two sons. You don't know which one is faithful. It actually requires a test. You have to get close. You have to test these things. That's, that's how you know where, where, which one is righteous and which one is unrighteous. What will we do in the test, right? What will you do in the test? Especially the city of, of man creeps in. It's very easy to say, you know, look, I, I don't really have time for my religious convictions at work. I'm the vice president now. All these people are looking to me. I don't want to get fired. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like going to church and all, but are you crazy? I'm not going to lose my job over this. Or when somebody confronts you with sin and says, hey, I recognize your, this sin in your life. What do you do? Are you humble? Do you bring that into light? Do you, do, you, do you repent? Or do you, do you go further in the darkness and say, how dare you challenge me? Do you know who I am? 
Do you know what I've, and you protect that sin in the darkness. Or what about your money? Right? What do you do with your money? Do you just spend it all on yourself? That's what the city of man would tell you to do because that's where you have fun and get enjoyment. The city of man always has something for you to buy. Or, or are you generous? Are, are you compassionate with your wealth and, and you actually use it for God's purposes? Are you, are you more in the city of man? Or are you more in the city of God? And when somebody offends you, right, are you quick to forgive? Are you merciful? Or, or do, you, do you flex, right? Do you, do you make them bow down to your statue and say, you don't know who you've messed with? It, it, it's always the test, you know, that proves where you're actually anchored, who you actually are. What I love about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is, is, is how they respond in the test. I mean, they, it's a rags to riches story. <laughs> They've just gotten this big office, this big promotion. They've got all this comfort and wealth. And now their boss, <laughs> the guy they're supposed to be working from, says, hey, bow down. I mean, it could have been so easy. Can't you just see them saying, look, you know, we're over the Babylonians now. We don't want to lose our job. We don't want to die. Of course, in private, <laughs> we think it's a silly golden statue, but just do a quick bow. But they don't. And I love Nebuchadnezzar brings him in and he says, look, <laughs> just give me a bow. Give me a bow or, I'm, or you're dead, the fire. And I love their response. I mean, look at their response, verse 16. They say, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and says, look, king. They don't say it like that. They're respectful. They, they say Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer. You, you don't have to blow the horn, right? You, you don't have to give us the test here. We have no need to answer you. We're not going to bow. If you throw us in the fire, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fire furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, <laughs> be it known to you that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We trust God more than we trust you. It's as if they're saying, look, Nebuchadnezzar, we appreciate these jobs. I mean, that's something I think we can learn about this. They, they are working for Nebuchadnezzar, right? They are engaged in the city of man. There were things about Nebuchadnezzar's reign that were certainly unjust and certainly godless, but they're not separating. No, they're, they're, they're out cultivating the culture. They're taking the opportunities that God has given them and they're bringing about cultivation in the world around them. But then when they're asked to give allegiance to something that they cannot give allegiance to, when they're asked to worship something that is not the true and living God, they basically are, are strong enough to say, and I love this, we were never really citizens of the city of man in the first place. We were only ever here as ambassadors. <laughs> Our true king is the Lord, and we will do nothing to dishonor him. We will do nothing that will show that we do not trust him. We will not bow down. They didn't separate. They were a part of the culture. They, in many ways, they were helping to shape the culture, but they didn't assimilate. The city of man and all of its power and comfort that it had offered them hadn't grabbed their hearts. They, they understood themselves fundamentally as citizens of the city of God, and they were faithful to God. They passed the test. We believe that God will save us. And I love that they say this, even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. We're going to trust him. Even if we die, we're going to trust the Lord. You know, I, I want to do a question and answer. We, we had planned to do 
a question and answer later this month, and we're gonna have to move it probably into September because I really wanna get down to, I would say kind of the brass tacks of this. Like, what does faithfulness in a secular age mean? And I, I want to hear, we actually have a little panel that we've put together. I wanna hear your questions and I wanna try to help answer those in the most helpful way possible. But very simply, what I can answer now is, is it really comes down to this. It's, it's affirmations and denials. As a Christian, you can't affirm something that is contrary to the word of our Lord. And you can't deny something, you can't deny something that is clear in the word of our Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't work in a context where a lot of people around you are denying things that are clear in scripture and affirming things that are against scripture. That doesn't mean that you can't, even in that context, be a fool, right? People perceive you as, I can't believe somebody would believe those things. So that's, I'm not, this is not a call to separation. It's a, it's a call to distinctiveness, to faithfulness. And you know, I think this is really faithfulness. First Peter, I mean, this is exactly what First Peter is talking about. He's saying, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Honor God in everything that you do in front of the Gentiles so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they have a different ethic. They're going to see your ethic is wrong. When they speak against you, as your conduct is honorable, they will see your good deeds and, and one day on the day of visitation, glorify God. God will be manifest through you. That's exactly what happens in this story. The, the Chaldeans were laughing at the Hebrew God, but not at the end of this story. No, at the end of this story, they are in awe of what God has done because these men were willing to stand. Now, of course, in this story, they were willing to stand and God saved them in this amazing, beautiful way, but that's not always the case. I, you know, Christianity, our, our faith, is, is marked by the blood of the martyrs. And that's just true of who we are. And I'm not, I'm not saying that as a scare tactic or anything. I think that we live in an age and in a place, as secular as it may be, that we have so many religious liberties that we should be very, very grateful for. But we, we are among a people that have had to pay a dear price for faithfulness to the Lord. I think of Ignatius, one of the early Christians who was brought before Trajan, and, and, and Trajan basically made him declare. He said, declare that I am Lord. And he said, I will not, because Jesus is Lord over you. And Trajan fed him to the lions, probably in the Colosseum right there in Rome. I think of Hugh Latimer and, and Thomas Ridley, who were trying to bring the people of God back to faithfulness in the scripture. And well, there was a lot of people at that time that were actually using the Bible to kind of flex the muscles of the state. But Latimer and Ridley stood strong and before it, they were burned at the stake. And as they were being burned, Ridley was starting to cry out. And I love this story. If you ever go to Oxford, England, there's a memorial to these men and it, and it said that as they were being burned, as the fire was coming up, Latimer yelled out, play the man, Master Ridley. Play the man, be strong in this moment, trust God in this moment, because we shall this day light a candle by God's grace in England that as I trust will never be put out. God's gonna use this. God's gonna bring glory to himself through this. We, we see this all the time through a ministry that we are right now supporting that our church is so uh, grateful to partner with help the persecuted 
And I hear stories all the time of men and women, our brothers and sisters in different contexts, different parts of the world, that are losing jobs, being separated from family, even losing their lives because of their faithfulness to God. They, they understand then more than any identity that they have as a citizen of the city of man, that they are fundamentally, primarily citizens of the eternal and good and everlasting city of God. And that's exactly what we see with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The question becomes, though, how? <laughs> right? Isn't that the question? How do you do this? How do you have such courage and strength? Well, we see this in the story. It's our second point, the way to faithfulness. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar, he's enraged, right? He bind him up, throw him in the fire, heat it up seven times. You know, his own men, it's so sloppy, his own men are killed in the process. And yet, even though they're thrown into this fire bound, they're totally unharmed. They're protected. When they come out of the furnace, we read in Daniel 3.27, we didn't read this, but it says, the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. There was no smell of fire even upon them. God had totally protected them. But the question becomes, and this is, this is getting to the point of how. How did God protect them? And I want you to hear this. I want you to get this from this story. You know, God could, right before the guys were about to throw him in the fire, God could have just struck everybody blind. And... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have just snuck off. You know, God could have sent an earthquake that would have confused everyone. God could have sent a flood that would have put the furnace out. I mean, there were so many, there were so many ways, there were so many things. I mean, this is God. What could God have done to save his people from this bad situation? He could have done anything. But what does he do? How does he save them? And I want you to hear this. He walks through the fire with them. He gets into the fire with them. Verse 24, Nebuchadnezzar declared, did, were there three guys cast in the fire? And they answered, true, O king, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of gods. Now there's a debate among theologians. Is this Jesus? Is this some other theophany? Is this an angel? I don't have time to give you reasons of why it's one or the other, but what I do want to say is this. The God of Scripture is so different than any other God. You know, all other gods, they are so transcendent. They're above us, right? There's this effort to get up to them. Wherever they are, we got to get up to them. you got to get enough righteousness. you got to do what you got to do to get up to where they are. you got to try to do something to get up to their transcendence. Well, of course, the God of Scripture is transcendent. He's above all things. But he is also, and this is where he is so different, he condescends. <laughs> he is imminent. He is among us. We see this all throughout, we see this all throughout the Bible that God comes to where his people are. He comes to dwell among his people. He comes to endure with his people. And we see this no more profoundly, obviously, than in the person of Jesus who comes to meet us in our weakness, who endured, as the old catechism says, who endured all of the miseries of this life endured with us in the most profound way. You could say it this way. Jesus has walked through the greatest flame. You know, what are you facing? I look across a room like this. What are you facing? You know, some of you, it is pressure at work. 
Some of you, it's fear. Some of you, it's an illness. Some of you, it's a heartache. Some of you, it's loneliness. And I have good news for you. You know, the Bible says that we don't have a priest who is unable to sympathize with us. We don't have a Lord in Jesus that's unable to sympathize with you, but one who in every way, in every way can sympathize with you. He was an outcast. He was put down. He was rejected by people that he loved. He was humiliated. He was scorned. He was lonely. He endured all of the miseries of this life, and he endured the greatest misery of all. <laughs> you could say it this way. He endured the fires of hell. He endured the judgment that we all deserve because of our sin. And in him and through him, we are spared. Now, that doesn't mean that in this life you won't face fires and trials, right? As I just said, I mean, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this illustrative way for us were totally spared. It doesn't mean that in this life we won't face hardship, but it does mean that Jesus walks with us in the midst of every fire. And it does mean that in him we have hope for salvation, to be healed, to be spared, to be protected. Do you trust Jesus like this? Do you trust Jesus like this? Do you know him like this? The one that's with you in the storm, the one that you can come to with any vulnerability, right? You can come to him with all of your weakness. You can come to him with all of your sin. You can come to him with all of your hardship. You don't have to, you don't have to present yourself beautiful before him. No, he comes to you in the, in, when you're at your worst. And he loves you there and he walks with you there. That's who Jesus is. Do you know, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Are you, have, have you mistaken him for some other sort of God? Do you know him like this? How different is Jesus than Nebuchadnezzar? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar doesn't care about the people's hearts. He just said, bow, bow, bow. Jesus comes to us at our worst. He comes to us in the worst places. And he walks with us. And as we walk with him, as we are faithful to him, the end of the story is he exalts us. I love the end of this story. What does Nebuchadnezzar say? This is Nebuchadnezzar. He's just throwing these guys in the fire and he says, he says, the God of these guys, whoever this is, is greatly to be feared. He is the high God of the world. And I just want you to hear this. As you are faithful to him, as you love him, as you walk through the fires with him and let him walk with you, you will be exalted. It may come in years' time. It may come in a different age, but you will be exalted with him and he will be glorified through you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. Um, I, I just thank you that we have a record of how you've been working. We're not just left to kind of guess at what you might do. Lord, you have shown us, you've shown us over and over and over again, your character, your nature. And so, Father, right now, as we consider this passage from Daniel 3, I just ask that you would give us faith the kind of faith, Lord, that trusts you. We would, we would be faithful in the test. We'd be faithful in the test, that we would be the, <laughs> the sheep, that we would be the, the house on the rock, that we would be the, the wheat, the, the one who has proven faithful, Lord. We're gonna be tested, Lord. And the comforts and the privileges of the city of man can creep and grab our hearts and we're so tempted to find an identity 
in the city of man. Father, I pray that you would use this moment right now to help us to believe that we already have such a, a richer citizenship, greater citizenship, more wonderful citizenship in the city of, of God with, with our Lord Jesus. Increase our faith now. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name.